electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome to Overtime. I'm Scott Wabney. You just heard the bells. We are just getting started. In just a few minutes, I'll speak exclusively to Light Street's Glenn Kacher and get his best ideas right now. Looking very much forward to that interview. We begin, though, with our talk of the tape, the resiliency of this market. On display yet again today as the Dow erases a big hole and the Nasdaq surges. Even so, some say stocks are still on the edge of another major pullback. Let's welcome in BMO's Brian Belsky, whose year-end target for stocks is among the most aggressive on Wall Street, and Solus Capital's Dan Greenhouse. It's good to have you both with us. To you first, I mean, I can make a case on either way. Either we're on the edge of something, either up or down. You look at the transports today, negative. Defensive posture has been sort of the word of the day. However, we fought our way back on the doubt. Look at the Nasdaq surging today. Tech is strong. It's a resilient market. Which way are we going? Yeah, I mean, listen, uh, in, the short, in, the sh- in the short run here, I think the trucking stocks, which I, I think you guys talked about this afternoon, uh, are, are of particular importance. I think there's uh, a big debate right now about to what degree you saw a couple of stocks like Knight Swift and, and a couple of others basically tank. Uh, and th- my point is there's a, there's a debate, I guess, to what degree that is for idiosyncratic factors and to what degree that is sort of a, a harbinger of broader recessionary well, fears. What are you feeling so, today? If you look at this market, you're like, okay, the Dow... The Dow's down, down a couple hundred points. It's fighting its way back. It closes where it does. Technology's very strong again. Sure. You can erase a lot of negatives real quick. Yeah, listen, I think the market has been terrifically resilient. I think everybody's been talking about that for, for the better part of two weeks right now. I don't have any particular insight into why that is, other than to say in the short run, the economy's still particularly strong, and everyone seems to be talking nonstop, obviously, about the yield curve and the prospects of a recession. But that's something, as we've talked about, that's not going to happen for, for 12, 18, 24, perhaps even longer. Um, in the short run, you're still dealt with a strong consumer, uh, a relatively strong, albeit decelerating economy, and uh, therefore, in, in theory, higher stock. You know who who hopes we don't have a breakdown is the man I'm looking at right now, right in that camera, Brian Belsky, the man, as I said, who has, I think, the most aggressive target on Wall Street right now for the S&P 500 for the end of this year, 5,300. How are you feeling about that right now? Feeling great, Scott. We have almost nine months to go, and it's also great to be on with my good friend, uh, Dan Greenhouse. I mean, listen. Uh, we're still investors, and we still have the best market in the world here in the United States. And I think uh, the resilient word cannot be overused. Uh, and as we've been advocating now for several months, you have to be a stock picker, and you don't be—you should not be. I'm sorry, make decisions on the index level, uh, but really focus on the stock market as a market of stocks and own both growth and value. And, and I think that we're going to have this back and forth growth or value type of market uh, for much of this year. But I think the thing that everybody's missing is I still think foreign money is coming back to the U.S. And I think that's part of why you've seen this uh, very strong market. And I think it's going to continue. And I think people are going to be sur- surprised the second half of the year. You know, one of the things that you and I have been talking about offline and online is that earnings numbers are going up and nobody believes it. I sent you a chart over the weekend where if you take a look at fourth quarter earnings uh, since the beginning of this year, They're up 4%, and nobody's talking about this. We're also in sense that the recession's coming, and I just think that's wrong, Scott. 
Well, because the fourth quarter numbers don't matter. We're thinking about what lies ahead, Brian, and earnings growth is coming down. It's undeniable. Yeah, but Scott, you're living in the now, right? You're living in the now. We already know that uh, the stocks, the earnings are down. The market's going to discount what's coming. And I think that's why the second half of the year is going to surprise most people. You always want to, I mean, to use a skating analogy, hockey analogy, you want to skate to where the puck is going. But I think where the puck is going is that earnings are going to be better the second half of the year. And, and I don't think anyone's positioned that accordingly. And that's why you're seeing these back and forth big gyrations in growth versus value. And that's why the growth trade was working in March in particular. I don't know. Jamie Dimon says that the puck's going into like water. It's going to disappear like the ice is melting on this whole thing. He says the stronger the recovery, the higher the rates that follow. I believe this could be significantly higher than the markets expect. And the stronger the quantitative tightening. I mean, why is he wrong? I don't think he's wrong. But I think the point that, that Brian and I are making is that the, the sort of melting ice cube or ice, whatever analogy you just used, the question is for us as investors is, is that happening, happening over the next three, six or, or 12 months, let's say? And I think the answer is no. And I, I, so, so it's not quite earnings season yet. I don't disagree with anything Brian had to say. But there have been a couple of companies in the, in the last couple of weeks that have reported. I made a quick list coming on. KB Home reported. Ugly. Fine, but they had tremendous, uh, leave aside how investors viewed what could be, what they said was they're passing through all the price increases, tremendous demand for housing. Darden Restaurants reported, yeah, there were some worries about Omicron, but post that, plenty of demand and fewer restaurants. PBH, Phillips, what used to be Phillips Van Houston, they own Tommy Hilfiger and a couple of other things, uh, t- passing through raw material price increases, no, no issue. And then finally, General Mills, the stock's basically back to a record high, basically saying the yeah, same well, thing. Okay, well, Staples have done very well. And on that note, Brian, what am I supposed to do with this outperformance of utilities and real estate and Staples and healthcare? What's the message in that? And by the way, I can look at what technology did today, and I know it looks great. I can make a negative case there, too, if you really wanted me to just to play devil's advocate. I could say it's too top-heavy. Those are defensive stocks, just like the ones I named. They just don't feel or sound defensive. Well, I think the big tech stocks and the big communication services stocks are, are today's consumer staples names. If you take a look at consumer staples, utilities especially, they're very expensive, Scott. Outside of uh, a stock that is a brand leader, top 25 company in the world like Costco, I think it can do very well. Walmart can do very well in this type of, of scenario. If you take a look at healthcare. It's the cheapest sector in the market. You know, we use multi-factor models when we take a look at price of sales, price of earnings, cash flow, dividend yield. It's cheap, but at the, at the end of the day, it's not a value trap, but it is more value trap-ish because the earnings growth is not as strong as the market. You have to be excessively uh, selective there. I think there's way too much capacity in some of the orthopedics. You have to really dig in the, in the weeds in terms of biotechs and, and big cap pharma with respect to uh, pipelines. And so that has become... Probably the most stock picking oriented from a sector basis that I've seen in 15 years. So you really have to do the bottoms up work in healthcare. So from a from a from a sectoral basis, again, I think utilities and, and staples are very expensive, and that's the area that you probably should be trimming now. I want you to respond to Jamie Dimon as well because I keep hearing you bring it up, and it sounds it sounds worrisome, and I keep hearing yeah, but. Yeah, but things are good. The earnings are growing. Like you said, oh, a recession, even if it happens, isn't for 12, 18 or 24 months. Like Greenhouse just said, sitting here on this desk, what's your response to what Jamie Dimon has to say? This doesn't paint the prettiest picture. It doesn't. But again, remember, uh, he's trying to uh, kind of under promise and over deliver. 
you heard Mike Mayo before uh, the, the, your show started talking about deposits. I think we've kind of forgotten about the deposit business uh, in the big banks. And I think that's why, you know, I've gone back and forth on, on why we like the money center banks because of the multi-divisional assets. So I'm not surprised that he's talking things down. I think he's trying to get in the Fed's ear a little bit, not to be actually on the other side, not to be as aggressive uh, as everybody thinks. So, no, I'm not surprised he's saying that at all. But getting back to what Jamie Dimon had to say, I do think it's important, like we talk a lot about this, but it's important to frame the context in which this is happening. That is to say, the Fed is going to hike interest rates by, like, let's call it at least 200 basis points this year. In the last, like, 30 or 40 years, you've only had annual years, calendar years, with 200 or more basis points, like, twice. I think it was 04 and 94. Mm -hmm. That's almost never happened. And more importantly, going back, call it 40, 50 years, this is the most important point, the Fed has never not caused the recession when you've had the unemployment rate under 4% and inflation over 6%. The Fed has never engineered a soft landing in the environment in which we find ourselves. You started so, this conversation by saying that what do I agree with what Brian and I agree upon. I mean, you, now you sound like you agree with, with Diamond and you don't think that, that Belsky's view he has 5,300 on the S&P 500 sure. for this year. Does that sound reasonable to you? The next nine months, He's I He's not no- even sitting here, so you can say whatever you want. But Brian knows where to reach me. But, but listen, <laughs> do I think the market's going to end the year at 5,300? That might be a little high for me. But do I think the market, the bias is for equities and credit to be higher or to appreciate over the course of this year? Yes. The question for our investors and <laughs> in our fund is, am I supposed to advocate, oh, we need to liquidate everything we possibly can because perhaps 12 or 24 months from now there's going to be a recession? That's, that's not... Tenable. What, I, what we've discussed in the past and what I believe, and I would be interested in Brian's opinion on it, is how do I view my portfolio over the course of the next 12 months? There's just been a starting gun, so to speak, that says, hey, uh, the yield curve inverted, granted for a minute and barely, but like uh, there might be a recession over the next 12, 24 months. Perhaps my uh, higher beta, my illiquid positions, or anything that I'm less comfortable with, my, whatever, however you want to define that, I'm supposed to begin thinking about that rotation. It doesn't mean right now Jamie Dimon saying the sky is going to fall when they hike by 50 basis points four times over the next four months. Now I have to be completely in cash. I, I disagree with with that, I think this is obviously a process rather than an event. Sure, and timing anything is, is virtually impossible. But how do you deal with that uh, perspective, Brian? Well, if you go back to the 1970s, the average time is anywhere between 11 and 23 months. The average over that time is 17 months when the yield curve inverts. I think too many people are talking about the 1970s, so let's talk about it just to give you some facts. Between the time the yield curve inverted in 1978 to when we saw the recession, the stock market was up 9%. And if you would have sold everything back then, you would have missed out on that 9%. That being said, I still think what, what we should be doing is everybody talks about it, but nobody really defines it. Be a quality investor with respect to both growth and value. Look at the operating performance and cash flow, balance sheet strength, that they pay a dividend, even better. And I think you can be very well balanced in both growth and value and not be overly with in terms of a high tracking year in terms of sectors. And I do agree that the, 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 the more illiquid the more, I think, risk. But I I go back to consumer staples and utilities uh, and do the same work uh, that you did on technology. Technology was expensive, and the market did a really great job in terms of of being discriminating and selling those high multiple areas. I think the same thing is going to happen in staples and utilities, and that's where I think too many people are overloaded. Well, I'll tell you what, Brian. I mean, there are some people like Dan Niles who think that technology is going to go right back to where it was in terms of lower. 
that this is a fool's rally. It's a bear market rally in every single respect, and it's going to be sold. And some of the stocks that have had nice bounces off the lows are going to revisit the ugliness. And in the not-too-distant future, why is that view so outlandish? Well, I think I don't think it's outlandish when you think, think about the way that Dan invests. Dan's primarily a very high-growth investor. He's saying the opposite that Kathy Wood is saying, uh, and that's okay. Every, you need the market, but I think you need to be a diversified technology um, owner and actually not be overweight. We're not overweight tech. We're overweight tech for the next three to five years, but we're not overweight tech for the next 12 to 18 months because I still think it's a really big part of the of the market. You can't be markedly overweight tech unless you have a very, very big position, like let's say 40%. We're not advocating that. We're just advocating the high quality, cash rich, consistent earnings tech. And we do not think that they're expensive. All right. Let's have, add to this market mashup. Let's bring in Brenda Vingello of Sandhill Global Advisors, of course, of the Halftime Investment Committee. Greg Branch with us of Veritas Financial Group. It's good to see the both of you. Greg, you used the word with our producers today, a reckoning, that we've got a reckoning coming. In what sense? I did. And, and I, I largely agree with Dan on this, that, that the Fed has never engineered a soft landing with even just some of the factors uh, that we're seeing right now. And so I would add to the factors that, that he intimated that in four of, the five, uh, four of the five last recessions, we saw a double in energy prices contribute greatly to that outcome. And that's what we've had here. I, I'd add that in those past recessions, we haven't seen supply chains impacted to the degree that we see them now that have led to the persistently high inflation. I would add that we didn't have a global conflict threatening to push energy prices higher for longer, as well as continue to impair those global supply chains. And so in far less circumstances, in far less precarious circumstances, the Fed hasn't been able to engineer a soft landing, and I don't think that they'll do that here either. Now, I'm not necessarily saying that we'll have a recession in 2022. But what I am saying, Scott, is what you alluded to earlier, that corporate earnings growth is without a doubt decelerating. Uh, probably into the mid to low single digits. And none of the big banks are there yet, although many of them are coming down and coming down. They were over 5,000. They're coming down to the 49, 48, 4,700 range. Uh, but I think it's far more likely that we see a sub 4,000 on the S&P 500 than we see an above 5,000 just from the sheer number of bottom line challenges that companies will continue to face throughout the year. We've talked about inflation rising faster than wages both of which is a, com- a, a problem for, for corporate America. We talked about the increasing um, interest rate environment, which makes debt mm-hmm. obviously a lot more expensive. Uh, so I, I just see lots of challenges that we have to answer for. I think today's a perfect example. I'm looking at it like a football game. you got the defense, the NASDAQ look great the whole game. Offense, getting banged, pushed around a little bit, finally found something towards the end of the game, put something together and won the game. But it doesn't hide the deficiencies that the offense is facing right now. And you could say, well, the running back's not doing that well. It's all done on the receivers because technology is doing well as part of that and some of the other stocks. But the transports, Brenda, as I mentioned, and some of those defensive sectors are the ones that continue to stand out, albeit not so much today. What does it all mean? Yeah, I think when we talk, look at the transports in particular, I think some parts of the economy, like goods, related industries, you could say we have seen peak there. If we look at where all the consumer dollars went over the last couple of years. You know what? We're going to have to work on Brenda's uh, microphone. I apologize. Greg, why don't you take that, that too? Right? I mean, you could, you could look at today and say, wow, that's a really resilient market. And that's super impressive. But there are some deficiencies right. under the surface. 
Yeah, look, I, I am a little bit worried about the casino, probably more so uh, than Brian. We are transitioning from a period where consumer demand was largely supported by physical stimulus. We'll be, we'll be uh, uh, lapping that. On the one hand, while we are seeing strong wage growth, and we'll continue to see that, by the way, the JOLTS data showed 11, 11.2 million openings. We have about 900,000 people looking for jobs. As long as the it's, as long as long the competition for workers remain intense, we'll continue to see wage inflation. But it was only 5.6%. Agreed, it was bigger than the 5.2% from last month, but a far cry from a 7.9 CPI. So what you're seeing with the consumer is that the basket of goods that they have to buy is eclipsing their available spend. And I think that that will continue to play out through the year. So I do think we'll see some top-line challenges. But at the end of the day, it's that bottom-line challenge for the companies that concerns me the most. And I think we will continue to see a sharp deceleration into what is likely a recession. We have all of the ingredients for it. If we have all the ingredients for a snowstorm and and you think it's not going to snow, you have to tell me why. And we have all of the ingredients for a recession. You couldn't write the playbook any better than the factors we have right now. I don't know. I mean, sometimes, with all due respect, the weathercaster blows the forecast. I mean, sometimes it doesn't come out like the models suggest. And we're looking at a model, right? That's what this whole thing is about. Sometimes it doesn't come to fruition the way you think. Brian Belsky, what do you make of Kathy Wood? You mentioned her earlier. You know, obviously, the ARC funds remain in focus, and those stocks have gotten off the mat, too. And they've recovered quite nicely. She basically tweeted that the Fed's making a big mistake. Yeah, I don't think the Fed's making a big mistake, but I think obviously the, her her approach is obviously momentum-driven. We already know that. Kathy was was a prior longtime client of mine through the years, and, and she she is what she is in terms of picking those stocks. But I, I think the I think we're all being t- way too negative on the Fed. Doesn't matter if it's this person or that person. I think I think we've been disrespectful to the Fed. I really do. And you didn't see these same people uh, be chastising the Fed back in March of 2020. So again. We know that the Fed has a hard time um, orchestrating um, a soft landing, but we are dealing with uh, variables that we've never dealt with before. I think it's dangerous to say uh, it's different this time, but I think there's a very good chance that the supply chain issue could come off just as as fast as it it increased in terms of the problems. And I think with respect to Kathy, obviously she's doing what she does in terms of looking out longer term. But mm-hmm. I think where she is absolutely right, Scott, is that when growth is scarce, growth outperforms. And I think that's where she's kind of going with this. And I think that's what ultimately you've seen why you've seen this momentum back into tech on a short term basis. We're going to leave it there. Greg, thank you. Brian, thank you. Dan, thank you as well. We'll talk to all of you again soon. I know we will. We're, our apologies to Brenda. We'll have her back as well. Up next, the Twitter takeoff. Elon Musk taking a big stake in the social media company. So what's at stake for the stock? We'll discuss that. Plus, the big tech buy list. Light Street Capital's Glenn Kacher giving us his best ideas. Overtime's back in two minutes. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, 
our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Story of the day for short, individual stock standpoint. That's Twitter. Shares surging on news. Elon Musk has taken a more than 9% stake in that company, becoming its largest individual shareholder. So what might Mr. Musk be up to? Let's ask Alex Kantrowicz. He is big technology founder and a CNBC contributor. What do you think the answer to that question is? Well, look, I think that Elon Musk knows what he's doing here. He's helped pump cryptocurrencies. Um, he likes to cause a ruckus, and he's causing a ruckus with Twitter. And he might see Twitter as the ultimate meme stock here. You know, we see all what happened with GameStop and AMC. And Twitter is a place where memes are made. And Elon Musk is super active there. He probably knew he could jump in, cause chaos, maybe get some of his perspective into the heads of management there. And hasn't it worked out quite well? He added $750 million to his net worth today. Uh, and this is probably not the last we're going to see of it. All right. Well, then, then on that note, right, how active, so to speak, do you think he's going to be? Right now, it's a, it's a passive stake. Might he become, though, more active? May he look for board seats or, or something even more than that? Yeah, I would be shocked if Elon doesn't become more active here, only because you look at the way that he runs his companies. He has SpaceX. It's all about getting the space and making us some inner, uh, a multiplanetary species. He has Tesla, which is all about, you know, helping the world, bringing electric cars in. And he sees Twitter as the de facto town square. Right. And that's another important part of the world is the way he puts his business uh, investment in terms of his time and his money is all about changing the world in a way that he thinks is for the better. And Twitter fits squarely into what Elon is interested in. So do I think that he's going to sit there and be a passive investor? No, I think the fact that he even filed on that form is a bit of a joke. And we're going to see him be extremely active. All right. So if you're sitting inside Twitter today in one of the executive suites or the rank and follow, whatever, what do you think you're thinking today? Mm -hmm. Let me tell you this. I watched Twitter very closely today and I haven't seen a single Twitter employee, not one Twitter employee celebrate their new investor. You would think that someone comes in and puts nine, you know, buys nine percent of your company and that, you know, a couple billion dollars in spikes the stock up 25, 27 percent. You would be celebrating. Haven't seen any of that today. And that tells me everything I need to know. I think Twitter employees, by and large, are very wary about Elon's involvement. They've seen him trying to become like a de facto product manager of, of Twitter as he tweets his way through the way that the, they should handle their their product and their content moderation. And um, I don't think they like it at all. And I think there's reasons to be concerned, especially when it comes to advertising. I saw this one suggestion today uh, from you know, a respectful person with a respected point of view who suggested that they wouldn't even be surprised if somehow Twitter ended up as a private company through, through all of this, that Musk would team up with private equity and do that. Do you see that? Look, I wouldn't say anything is impossible with Elon Musk. We've seen what he's done, and he likes having people tell him that stuff is impossible, and then he goes ahead and does it. However, I believe that Twitter should be a public company. I think it should be accountable to shareholders. I think it's one of the few prominent tech companies, the few tech companies uh, that are managing speech that doesn't have founder control at the moment and has a more um, you know, equal distribution among shareholders. It's an important public good. And I think to take it private, to put it all in one person's hands, um, to me, would be a, a, a devastating move. Uh, it would harm, uh, you know, Elon says he wants to, you know, increase free speech here. I think it would harm 
free speech because it would be about the speech that Elon wants, no matter what values he's trying to you know, implant in the, in the company. And so, no, I believe that it should be public. Um, and, yeah, it would be a shame if it went private. Uh, interesting. That's an important point you make, too, about the single class of shares rather than some of the other companies uh, that we've seen. Uh, Alex, I appreciate your time so much. Enjoy the conversation. Take care. We'll see you again soon. Let's get to our Twitter. Thank you. Speaking of question of the day, we want to know what do you think is the best Musk trade right now? Is it Twitter? Is it Tesla? Is it something else? You can head to at CNBC overtime and cast your vote. We'll bring you the results at the end of the show. Up next, we're drilling down on the tech trade with Light Street Capital's Glenn Kacher. Where does he see opportunity in that sector today? He joins us exclusively next. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Welcome back to Overtime. Time for a CNBC News update with Shepard Smith. Hey, Shep. Hi, Scott. From the news on CNBC, here's what's happening now. The National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said this afternoon Russia is committing war crimes in Ukraine and that the carnage in the town of Buka this weekend is more proof. The Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, in Buka called it genocide. Since the bedroom community was retaken by Ukrainian forces, officials say more than 400 civilians have been found dead there and in surrounding towns. An arrest announced after the weekend mass shooting in Sacramento. Six people killed, all identified now, 12 others injured. Cops continue to search for suspects after more than 100 shots were fired. And the Senate Judiciary Committee expected to vote shortly to send Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson's Supreme Court nomination to the full Senate. That nomination expected to advance on an even party line vote. Tonight, new data shows the fentanyl crisis in America is exploding. We'll talk to the director of the National Institute on Drug Abuse about what's being done to stop it on the news. Right after Jim Cramer, 7 Eastern, CNBC. Scott, back to you. Appreciate it, Chef. Thank you. We'll see you then. Another strong day for tech stocks, as you know, which have surged off the March bottom. Is it sustainable? That's the big question. And where is there still opportunity in that space? Let's ask star tech investor Glenn Kacher of Light Street Capital. Welcome to our new program. It's good to see you. Thanks for having me on, Scott. Appreciate it. Yeah, I was looking at some of these software names today. Um, obviously a nice move today, and it's been a really nice bounce from the bottom. Do you think the worst is over? We, we do. Uh, we've you know, seen software multiples come down 50% to pre-COVID levels. We can buy, buy blue chip software companies growing at 25% a year at six to seven times recurring revenues. And they're generating mid-20s EBITDA margins. These are the most durable companies in the tech industry. Once their customers start using their product, it's very hard for them to stop, and they typically grow um, processes on top as well as 
plug more, even more software solutions into those underlying uh, software products. So we see a real uh, opportunity here that only comes along every few years. How do we know that multiples have compressed enough if we think that interest rates are going to rise more? Well, it's impossible to know exactly, you know, where the bottom is, um, you know, with any precision. So, but, you know, when we look back at other periods where the yield curve flirted with inverting and where uh, the Fed was raising interest rates, uh, a lot of the damage tends to come up front. We also look at it, and when we're talking to software companies or customers of, of those companies, they really see buying more software as a way of fighting inflationary pressures. If you really think about it, enterprise software uh, creates processes and, and allows for the reduction of labor and lower cost business uh, business processing. So, you know, we really see that the, our companies and software companies selling uh, the antidote to inflation, which helps their demand. Let's go through some of the names uh, that you like. Zendesk is one of your faves. It's a Z-E-N for those who are playing wherever you are. Why so? Yeah, so they're seeing real improvement in their business. They've rolled out a sweet product, and they've also been attacking larger and larger enterprises with their solutions. And that's really uh, re-accelerated corporate growth into the mid-30s. Um, we've also seen an opportunity here related to some, uh, you know, activists and, and failed M&A. The company was trying to buy momentum, as you probably uh, know, Scott, and uh, investors came out and said, you know, that's not really what we want. We don't want to see a larger uh, expense base here. We'd like you to continue to manage up those operating margins as, as we've seen this really strong growth in the core. And um, now we're at a point where private equity has made a bid for the company. Hellman and Freeman made an uh, unsolicited bid uh, without really doing any uh, upfront work and getting into to, to look at the company's books at $127 to $132 per share as sort of an opening salvo. Toma Bravo has been silent. And, um, you know, we see the strategic value of this company at uh, 180 to $200, most likely, if there were to be a strategic bidder. We, th- we think there are at least seven significant strategic bidders that could try to take the company out. And the third wow. option is that management just, you know, continues to run the business really well, but manages the expense structure down. And we think the, the, the stock could be a double or a triple there uh, going that route over a couple of years. One of your largest positions is in GoodRx. Uh, why so? Why do you like that one? Well, you know, we've, we've been through a period uh, in, during COVID where consumers were going, you know, to the doctor at, at, at lower rates um, because uh, doctors were shut down or, and, and consumers were trying to stay away from places where perhaps there was a, chan- a higher uh, chance of getting COVID. And during that uh, COVID period, we, we actually saw diagnoses of serious and, serious and chronic conditions uh, decline. And that's not because these diseases were less common. It's just because people weren't going to the doctors much. Um, this company has been growing its revenue in the, in the mid-30s, uh, despite this slowdown in doctor visits. And at the end of the day, they really help consumers save money on and, and, and make, that, make uh, 
pharma, pharmaceuticals more affordable? What could be better than that uh, for the consumers out there? And, um, you know, it's, it's, it, they, they just set reset guidance a little bit uh, very conservatively because, again, in Q4 when Omicron spiked up, it uh, reversed some of the positive trends that had been occurring uh, last year. So we've seen them kind of pull back, set a low bar, and we expect 2022 to be a fantastic uh, period for the company. Yeah, I mean, because the stock's been cut more than in half, right, from its 52-week high. I'm looking at it on my fact set right here. 48 uh, is the 52-week. It's obviously $20 now, three months. It's down 35%. So, I mean, you see enough upside to get back towards that high level that I just mentioned? Absolutely. We see this stock being a double or triple in two and a half years. Interesting. Um, other plays that you I'm just curious your take on EV stocks. I mean, because they were sort of in the epicenter of the, you know, getting ahead of yourself, growthy names with big multiples. Now, obviously, a lot of them have, have come back down to earth. But how are you playing that space right now? Yeah, we're playing it in a very selective way. I mean, we see Tesla absolutely just, you know, executing at the top of its game, uh, scaling manufacturing globally in, in, in China as well as Europe, despite shortages in the uh, semiconductor area as well as in the, the battery uh, area. But the company has done really a fantastic job of mani- managing its uh, supplier base over the last several years, and that's enabled them to uh, grow market share and really take over share from traditional car makers, both in the EV category and in the uh, taking share from internal combustion cars. We also like a company called Li Auto in China, which is a very focused company, just sells one model now and is getting closer to selling a second model of an SUV. Um, it's a hybrid solution, which uh, makes it uh, a very good solution in the Chinese market, given that there is less exposure to or less opportunity for charging stations. So it really uh, can can be a single car for, for a family and, and, and allow them to travel both on um, traditional gasoline as well as EV. You know, we, we used to speak a lot about, and speaking of China, about China technology stocks. And if I recall, the last time you were on with me was maybe a handful of months ago. I feel like you told me, at least in in your eyes, that the story had changed a bit. It's obviously become a much more volatile space and maybe with that more difficult. Where are you today? Because, you know, those stocks, for example, today uh, had a big day, but tomorrow could get creamed. How do you play it, if at all, right now? Well, it's been a very tricky uh, sector. Uh, we're, we're seeing macro uh, news in, in China be, um, uh, it's getting a little bit better po- as COVID's uh, calmed down, but, but it's still a challenging backdrop, growth backdrop. And at the same time, there's been a lot of um, new regulation in the internet sector and technology sectors. We think at this point that a lot of that fear has maybe been overblown. And the government, frankly, has come out and cleared up some of their intentions uh, about how uh, the risks of perhaps a delisting and some of the auditing measures that the U.S. uh, would like to uh, get access to their uh, companies to to enable uh, our markets to continue to trade those securities. So I think that there's been a little bit of a de-risking there. We like some of the the base e-commerce companies, Alibaba, 
JD, Meituan, as ways to play an economy that we think will mm -hmm. uh, be recovering in 22 and 23. Um, before I let you go, um, obviously one of the, the stories of the day, as I mentioned, and obviously out there, Silicon Valley, where you are, Elon Musk and, and Twitter. Uh, you own Twitter? Does this make you want to own Twitter? We don't own Twitter. As, as, you know, as you know, it's primarily a news business at this point. Uh, news businesses can be uh, tough to monetize. I think the company has a, a long track record of uh, running a, a really high uh, quality and unique site, but um, finding it difficult to monetize that site and to really grow in a sustained basis there. Uh, users and traffic. So while it's an important, let's say, public good, maybe, and I think Elon, you know, as many, um, many billionaires and, and, and uh, public figures see a lot of value in Twitter uh, to their businesses and to their ability to speak out, speak directly to their customers and their fans, so to speak. Um, I'm not so sure that it's, uh, it's a great investment for us. Oh, OK. All right. We'll make that the last word. It's good to see you. Glenn Kacher, Light Street Capital. Talk to you again soon. Thank you very much, Scott. All right. You take care. Much more on Musk's stake in Twitter ahead. Halftime committee member Pete Najarian joins us next on where he stands on the stock and why. And later, a top media play for your portfolio. That's in our two minute drill. Overtime's back after this. In today's halftime overtime, Josh Brown's hot take on Twitter during that stock's second best day ever and what he says could be in store for the company after Elon Musk takes his stake. It's one of the worst technology investments I've ever been involved with. I didn't lose money, uh, but it was dead money during a period of time where the Nasdaq quadrupled. I could have literally thrown a dart at almost any other stock and made money. I don't see myself getting back in, even though I wouldn't be shocked if another 13F were filed, and somebody else with deep pockets came in and said, wait a minute, he's not taking that thing. I want to take this thing. Well, it wasn't dead money for our next guest, MarketRebellion.com co-founder Pete Najarian, who bought Twitter calls on March the 25th and sold those calls today for a nice profit. Right, Pete? Well, it, it was great last week, Scott. I mean, we talk about this all the time, unusual option activity. We were talking about it last Monday and some huge buying in there. 13,000 of those May 44 calls. Buck and a quarter. Today, they open up around seven bucks. Uh, you don't ever want to overstay your welcome. Yes, they went up higher. They actually went all the way up to 940 on the day, then pulled back a little bit. But amazing how fast things can move, especially when Elon Musk is involved and, and his voice does speak a lot louder than a lot of others, especially with the fact that he's got 80 million Twitter followers, Scott. So um, really interesting news that broke out today, obviously. And it's it's amazing. I mean, when you look at the volumes today, for instance, 264 million contra or shares traded versus 19 million normal. 1.6 million option contracts traded. It was the number one trading option um, out there today. So that was interesting. 71% of that was coming on the call side. So a lot of activity it was going throughout the trading session. Even in the after hours, we're seeing more and more volumes co collect as far as the, the shares are concerned. But uh, an amazing day for Twitter, there's no doubt. I'm, before I let you go, I'm told you're, you're buying Facebook calls today. Is that in part because of this? Well, in part, but I would also say this. I'm considering more. Yes, I bought some Facebook calls. They were buying very short-term calls, again, that expire on Friday. 
I like this name. And I'll tell you what, the comparisons, I think, between Facebook and Twitter are very interesting because of the fact that when you look at these, you go back to like 2014, Scott, and it's a great example of what you've got to have your eye on the ball. And that's one thing that you've got to give to Facebook, Metaverse, whatever you want to call it, and what they have done. They have kept their eye on the ball the entire time. Twitter, on the other hand, they were only focused on eyeballs. They weren't focused on profit. And when you look at where the stock was from the time of the IPO until it was last Friday, you had gained uh -huh. nothing. Meanwhile, you look over at Facebook and you see something that's just an unbelievable trajectory to the upside. So when you look at these two companies, one has incredible free cash flow, the other not so much. One has incredible growth, the other not so much. One is all right. about profits being Facebook, Twitter, not so much. And I think that's the problem. And I see Elon is probably looking at that and saying, you know what, this can change and maybe he's the guy who can do the change. I wish I had more time, but... Not so much. Pete, All good, we'll see man. you soon. All right, that's Pete and Jerry. And up next is Santoli's last word. Plus, cashing in on sky-high gas prices, the stock one money managers betting on now. That's in our two-minute drill. And as we head to break, a message from CNBC contributor Nelson Ranieri as CNBC celebrates Financial Literacy Month. I arrived along with my family when I was three and a half years old from Cuba, and we didn't have anything but $50 and a lot of dreams. But what we learned was that we live in a country that for those who are willing to learn how the financial system works, educate themselves and work hard, there are pathways to increasing personal wealth. It's been an exciting journey and I encourage all Americans to take advantage of a lot of the free resources to educate themselves more on personal finance. Welcome back. We have an OT alert to tell you about GoodRx, the shares that we just spoke about with Glenn Kacher of Light Street. Look at that, up 3%. That's after he told us that he thinks that stock could double or even triple in the next two and a half years. We also have another big mover in overtime, cruise line operator Carnival. Seema Modi telling us those details, which is why the stock is on the move, Seema. Hey, Scott, recession fears do not seem to be derailing the travel rebound. Carnival Cruise Line just disclosed that last week was its busiest week of bookings in the company's history with a double-digit increase from the previous record. And as bookings improve, it's continuing to add back more ships with 22 of its 23 vessels back at sea, the 23rd set to sail this May. You'll see shares are higher on this encouraging update, but still a ways to go, down about 35% from its 52-week high. Scott? All right, Seema, thanks. That's a nice move in the OT. Up next is Santoli's last word, why it might be time to relax. Over time, we'll be right back. All right, let's get to Mike Santoli for Santoli's last word. Today it is... Well, Scott, asking if it's safe finally to relax. Um, now, maybe it seems a little rich, right? We're up 10% off the lows, and now it's time uh, to relax a little bit. If we dial back a few weeks when we started this thing, the line was people were way too negative. The market was oversold. We're due for a bounce, but that bounce would face a pretty high burden of proof in terms of, you know, how persistent it was, whether, in fact, the macro stress indicators were relieved along the way. And I think all of that has pretty much fallen into line. And the action today, led by the big growth stocks, which have lagged 
and therefore perhaps have some room to catch up. Usually the market is just in a much more uh, kind of balanced state when you have those stocks working. There's such huge market caps and it clears the way for a lot of other things to maybe rest and reset. So all that being said, uh, I think really all that's happened is we thought the market could have gone down more on a lot of the obvious concerns. It refused to. And so therefore, maybe all the things we're worried about, which is all on the come. People talking $200 oil hasn't happened. People talking what the yield curve means. Well, that's still up for speculation. None of it is manifest in the earnings estimates so far or really even in the real time economic data. So here we are. All right. Thank you. Mike Santoli with his last word. Just relax. Coming up. Three top picks for your portfolio over time. We'll be right back. Results of our Twitter question of the day now. The best Musk trade. Is it Tesla, Twitter, or other? Well, Tesla was the big winner. 62%. Two-thirds think Tesla is the best Musk trade. Twitter, second, other. And I'm told we were getting a lot of Dogecoin write-ins. Go figure. It's time now for the two-minute drill. Three top stocks for your portfolio. With us now is Wall Street Alliance Group's Adil Zaman. Adil, you are on the clock. You, you saw Twitter, uh, excuse me, Tesla, won our poll, and that's one of your top picks. Yeah, so great to be with you, Scott. So Tesla's Model S plan goes from zero to 60 within two seconds. The stock is up about 30% uh, within the past two months. You know, this is a, the most exciting stock out there. And because of fuel prices skyrocketing, more people are going to gravitate towards electrical vehicles because it's three to five times cheaper uh, per mile, uh, the driving cost of electrical vehicles. So we think that Tesla is going to be a big beneficiary of this trend, and we love the stock. Wait, the most exciting stock out there in the entire market of stocks is Tesla? We, we love this stock. You know, this company, uh, like Apple's iPhone, uh, is the dominant phone, smartphone. We feel that Tesla's electric vehicle is the dominant electric vehicle. It wow. represents to consumers luxury within reach. You know, it's, it's, uh, it, consumers are willing to pay the high price because there are plenty of cost-efficient financing options available to, uh, to them. And uh, we feel the stock split is, could be an interesting catalyst as well. So we like the stock. We, okay, within reach, is assuming they can keep up the pace on, on deliveries, obviously. Netflix, down 30-plus percent year-to-date. Why is that on your list? Will Smith's slap caught the attention of everyone during the Oscars, but we think that the hidden gem is Netflix. With 27 Oscar nominations, they're producing really high-quality content, and the future of, uh, of content uh, consumption is streaming. And we feel that Netflix is the leader there with 222 million subscri- subscribers. It's still the king in that space. And the stock's down about more than 30% year to date. We see an opportunity there. Quickly, real quick, on Deer, D-E-Y. And real quick, please. Well, Deer is uh, linked with the U.S. farmers. We feel because crop prices are up, Deer is going to benefit because farmers will have more money in their pocket to buy farm equipment. So we think that this is a quick. great industrial pick in the portfolio. Adil, I appreciate it very much. Thank you. A quick reminder, don't miss tomorrow in overtime. The legendary investor Lee Cooperman will be with us right here. I hope you will join us. It does it for us. Fast Money begins right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground Service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 